we have asked you to be present with us. As we begin our worship, we certainly know that by your Spirit and through the reading and proclamation of your Word that the Spirit is working in our lives. That we do not need some great event. We do not need a light show. We do not need all kinds of bells and whistles to sense and know that your Spirit is working within us or is very present because with our creeds and our confession and all based upon your word, we believe that you are speaking to us and ministering to us through this word today. And we pray that you, are, you would be glorified in your work that you accomplished to have done will be done through it. And we ask that your blessing would be on all of us, me reading and teaching, and all of us who are listening as well. So we pray that you would do this work in us. We beg you to do that work within us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4. Lamentations. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people have has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who brought up, were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits of the fields. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became food, their food during the deconstruction of the daughter of my people. Or the destruction. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The, king of, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in, in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. The dog, they dogged our steps so that we could not walk in the streets. End, or Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us in the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The, the breath of, the, of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. 
of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But, you, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of our iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, and he will uncover your sins. That is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Well, I say wow to that passage. I wish uh, Jeremiah, the poet, would have ended uh, in chapter 3. It would have been easier for all, all of us to digest and so much easier for me to preach that I wouldn't have to preach on chapters 4 and 5. But uh, God does not waste words like he does not waste suffering. And so we have this chapter 4. And as you notice, just from again, from the construction perspective of this poetry, the book of poetry, this five poems, we remember how chapter 1 and 2, the very first word was the word how, which is the title of this book, How. Not Lamentations, but How. And so notice now, chapter 4 begins with how, again, as these other chapters have. And notice how these uh, sentences that are acrostic, meaning that each, each uh, verse begins with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. That's why we are back now to 22 verses. Notice how they are getting shorter. If you notice how lengthy the other verses were in the other in the other chapters. These were these verses are getting shorter, and you will notice that that even happens in chapter five. Like there's there's a weariness or a tiredness coming from this poetry of this writer of being coming weary of just pouring out his heart and just explaining what's going on. There's this sense of even the weariness of, of the lamenter of just being drained from having to knocking upon the door for the Lord to his, hear. So, we have this lament. And remember that God has given, as I remarked last week, that God has given us this book of poetry to remind us of a historical event that took place that God judged Israel for their sins, of their disobedience, of being covenant breakers. But in the midst of covenant breakers are also those that God has promised to keep and to promise to never leave or nor forsake. And so as we see in verse 10, and I used the wrong word, I, it's destruction, and I said deconstruction, because I was thinking about actually what God has done for those who have been disobedient and have never loved the Lord and had no intentions of loving God or any intentions of uh, being covenant keepers. God destroyed them. God's judgment and his full wrath was upon them. And there is no hope for them, like there is for no hope for those of any of us who do not believe in Christ and who do not love Jesus and do not run to him for mercy and for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. But to those of us who believed in God's covenant relationship with them, he did not destroy them but is now deconstructing them. He's using this time of suffering, this time of observing this wrath that he's bringing upon people to remind them that I told you I wanted to bless you. But if you don't want me to bless you, then I won't bless you. And you will bear my wrath. 
Well, thank God we don't have to worry about that because of Christ. But God does, not because we have sinned, even though, as we've mentioned many times before, there, there are consequences to our sins, and we do suffer because of our sins or sins of others in our lives or the others outside of our life there we feel that effect but certainly because of the fall stuff happens diseases nature things fall apart bodies mind everything happens because of the fall but what God does for those who he whom he loves as we've talked about this discipline from God that we are not to be discouraged or frustrated by or from. He, he dis, deconstructs our life by the use of suffering, by the use of discipline. He takes apart pieces of our lives to make sure that we end up trusting him, which is painful for us to hear because we kind of like those things of our life. We kind of like those things so much that I think that's what's happening in chapter 4 is, is God is peeling away layer by layer everything that they put their hope in and said to them, I'm peeling everything away, I'm taking everything away so that there's nothing left for you to stand on but me. It's like God just kicking out the crutches from somebody hobbling along and saying, no, just, it's me. Hold on me. Rest on me. I'm the only one that will uphold you. Nothing else will. Everything that I gave you was meant to point to me and to remind you of me and to show my, and, and to sense my love through the temple, through the sacrifice, through the law, through the priest, through the teaching, through the land, through the protection of enemies. But if you depend upon those things for your salvation and rescue and being right with God, they become idols. And this is what I think is happening here, this deconstructing of Israel's idols, peeling them away. As we can see, they used to be like this, but now they're like this. And, and it's it's more about people now. Before, we, he talked about the temple. He talked about you know, what, what was happening around. But now it's like what's happening to the people and the, the, the pain of the people. One thing that's... I, I've showed you this book before, and I don't know if some of you ever bought it, but it's Rejoicing in Lament by J. Todd Billings, and it is in our church library. And I've read to you this from you before from this before but i'm going to read a, a little a, a pretty good sized section of it and he says this he goes in my own experience he talks about psalms of lament psalms of lament have rarely been used in corporate worship lectionaries often delete the raw cries of lament or anger or confusion in the psalms and churches that don't follow lectionaries do, do, do more even selectively choosing a psalm of thanksgiving from here or there or choosing verses of trust from the psalms of lament while leaving out the complaint itself likewise contemporary hymnals tend to have a far smaller portion of laments than the book of psalm does While psalms of thanksgiving are wonderful, they are rare in the book of psalms. They are rare in the book of psalms than in the psalms of lament. Cherry-picking only, only the praises from the psalms tends to shape a church's culture in which only positive emotions can be expressed before God in faith. In some sense, this lack of Effective agility in our faith is not surprising since our corporate worship has lost many of its elements that are so prominent in the Psalms of Lament. And as a result, along with the fear and anger and grief, 
faced during our hardships, we are not encouraged to bring those to church. Such emotions have become frowned upon as unreligious. When worship expresses only victory, it can unintentionally suggest that the broken and lonely and the hurting have no place here. The message can be, if you want to fit in, first get your emotions in order so that we can be positive and then go to worship. But the Psalms help us as that bottling up or trying to fix those emotions ourselves is not the right way. In commenting on Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart before God. He is our refuge. I mean, God is a refuge for us. Calvin rightly notes that when we face a crisis, we are all too apt at, some, at such times to shut up our affections in our breast, a circumstance which can only aggravate the trouble and embitter the mind against God. In contrast, a better way is to disburdening our cares to Him and thus as it were, pouring our hearts out before him. Fear, anger, confusion, protest. These are all emotions that we can and should bring before our covenant Lord with the psalmist. We are to lay open our hearts with all of, our, with all of their half-formed desires and uncomfortable emotions before the covenant Lord. Yet the psalms do not offer us a cheap form of therapy that simply expresses emotions for their own sake such that we will feel better if we just dump our emotions on someone but the spirit but by the spirit we bring our anger fear and grief before god in order that we may be seen by him and being seen by him leads to transformation so this is in a sense that i want you to feel that you're just dumping, that you're just getting it off your chest. I mean, that does help. But what we're talking about here is cultivating a closer relationship to the God who you believe is completely sovereign over your life and my life. And if he deems fit to allow things to go through his finger into our life, it is to draw us closer to him and not help us run away from him. Feeling his displeasure rather than seeking his love. His steadfast love, which is mentioned 130 times in the Old Testament. So that's an important phrase. The covenantal love of God. And as I'd mentioned before, that this book is given to us not just to build a knowledge of who God is, though that does help, but to be encouraged or to, be, to run closer to God because of what God is presenting to us and saying, there is no hope. My hope is built on nothing less than you, God. And so he is telling us that this isn't just like going to the museum and getting knowledge and finding out about a historical of, event that took place in the life of Israel. As I mentioned, it's like going to the museum of, for the Holocaust or the 9-11 to go and to smell and to taste and to see and to walk out with emotion that you've been gripped. Not you just walked out because you listened to a great lecture about some art piece that you've been dying to see. And that's what the book of Lamentations is for us. This is what it's about for us. And so it's not a sense of therapy, but it is a place where we should get used to, not overdue, but get used to the fact that this should be a regular part of our experience with one another and here as a church service and in our small groups and in our prayer meetings that we should feel that we can bear our very soul to each other and that actually it's to God within, in, in the embrace of the love that we have for the community of people that we are with. And sometimes that's difficult for people to be around. And sometimes we don't hear it enough that we're not used to it. And I know, I remember the, 
I was think, reading this and talk, thinking about this message and thinking about one individual in my life, in my church experience, that stood up and took this to heart and really shook everyone. Because we do come here, we want to be uplifted, right? We come here, we want to hear good news. We want to know how much God loves us. But within our hearts, there's a lot of lamenting going on that nobody sees. Nobody feels. Maybe a small amount of people, but this is a church where we're supposed to be able to come. As brothers and sisters, to be able, again, not to overdo it, to be in a situation where we bring a truck every week and dump. But a place where if we are burdened by something, that we should not be afraid. This individual, individual in my life, and Susie knows who this person is, because he was coming to our church in one of my churches. And we were having a prayer time, and he wanted a prayer request. And he stood up and, and just talked about how he wanted God's help because he was going through a very difficult time. And he said, I, 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 th- I am so burdened beyond, beyond words. And, and, and I led this man to the Lord, and I, have, I was discipling him. And I loved him. I loved being with him. Even when he was, uh, he was, he was addicted to drugs, and I even took, I even just, even went on, play, I went to places with him, even when he was out of his mind on drugs, just to be with him. And he stood up, and he was doing better in certain areas of life, but he was having problems with his relationship with his wife, who was not happy that he was a believer. But he endured his children, adored his two daughters, adored them. And through some stipulation of the law and because of some technicality that was really bogus, she got an order so that he lost his visiting rights to, his ch- to see his daughters. And for him, that was the most unbearable thing that he could do. So he stood up in church and bawled his eyes out, standing up, and everybody was just stunned. Nobody knew what to do and how to deal with it. Even me. And I went to him after the service, and I mean, I thanked him for this, and we prayed for him. I, when he was standing up, I prayed for him. But you could see there was an uncomfortable sense. People knew about this, but this wasn't supposed to be the place you do this stuff. So I said to him, I said, we need to get together. So call me. Please call me this week. I called him. I couldn't get a hold of him. He never called me. The only call I got was from his mother on Thursday morning that he had taken his life. Because he couldn't bear with that any longer. To him, to him, that was, that he just could not give up that. Even if God was taking that away from him for a season... It was, it was more than he could bear. And this is what I think this message is trying to teach us. It's certainly trying to, it's certainly doing a job on the people who are going to be hearing this when they are reading this while they're either going through this or they're in exile and they'll be reminded of what Jeremiah had told them over and over again for the decades that he preached to them. Is that, do you really believe that I am your portion? Remember that from last week? The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. He's it. He's everything I need. If I have nothing else in this life or no one else in this life, The Lord is my portion. He is everything to me. And so what we see in chapter 4 is God just deconstructing the life of everything these people embraced. Even common dignity. Even a sense of their own morality. 
or the horror of what humanity, when pushed to the limits, has to do to survive. I, I'm thinking of, his, of, of uh, this verse I talked about last week from 2 Corinthians. In the very beginning, there's so many great things in 2 Corinthians. I remember teaching through that and just, and just finding so many nuggets of truth. And I've gone back to him a couple times for you here. He says this in chapter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are confronted. We don't want you brothers to be ignorant of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's what Abraham believed that God could do when God told him to go sacrifice his son. He said to them, let's go and do the sacrifice, but don't forget, we will be back. Knowing well that he was supposed to sacrifice his son, he truly believed that God could raise the dead and that he was going to raise his son because he was the son of promise. Now what I'm thinking here, we're, as, as we're seeing in chapter 4, and this goes with David as well, right? David was a man after God's own heart, but he had a difficult time watching Bathsheba sunbathe, and he wanted her. What we're looking at chapter 4 is an imperfect faith. It is getting back to reality. We have these high experiences, right? On Sunday, we get goosebumps. We get tears. We had a great Sunday. The music hit me. The message hit me. It was great. And then you wake up at the alarm clock, and it's Monday morning, and it's back to the Monday morning reality. And you've got to go back to that job. And you're still broke. And your loved one is still dead. Or you still have a disease that's not going to go away. Or your relationship is still broken. And this is what he's saying. He says, this, in the midst of all this, this is how you are supposed to believe that the great is the Lord's faithfulness. He is my portion because of his covenant love towards us. I can keep on going. And then he brings them right back and hits them and just saying, here it is, folks. It's in the midst of all this. You need to continue to do this. So for you to, be to believe that you, God is your portion, let me show you how God has deconstructed you. And if you don't believe me, then this is how God has destroyed you. Notice in, in chapter, one, chapter 4 of Lamentations, he says in, in the first verses, notice the comparisons. They used to be, and now they are. Notice how the gold was, how has it grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The precious sons of Zion work their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots. You see, this may be talking about literal gold in the temple, this may be the city. This may be Mount Zion. This may be everything that they hold dear to, even glittery with gold. Or it, could, it can be as well, as he says, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. It means that it, it is everything that was who God said he was, everything that God has given us, everything that God said was my possession that was so radiant to us, everything is now dim. It's not what it used to be anymore. There's nothing left. Oh, how it's all gone dim. It's not that vibrant, shiny object in front of me anymore. And the people are destroyed and sent off to exile and being tortured. And trying to be uh, brought into a whole new culture. To try to be uh, dogmatized into some sort of religion and some sort of faith to change people's names as we see in uh, uh, Daniel. 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Different diet, different uh, names. A whole new, re or, new orientation, being reoriented in something that you were not met, with gods that you are not supposed to follow, with food you should not be eating. These are, this is what's happened. These people have now are not as beautiful as they used to be. Verse 3 goes on to say this. Even jackals offer their breasts. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people, notice he, he talks about his people here, become cruel. They're like ostriches uh, in the wilderness. And in, in Job, it's quite a comment about ostriches in verse 39, chapter 39 of, you don't have to turn there, but you can mark it and take a look at it later on. He says, the wings of an ostrich weighed proudly, but are they, are they pinions or plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs on the earth and lets them be warmed by the ground, but she forgets that their foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample on them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. So here we see this sense of where he pulls up that um, jackals are better at taking care of each other than my people are. And notice he says in verse 4 that goes along with that, he says, the tongue of nursing infants stick to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Children beg for but there's no one to give them anything. They go from opulence, as we, have, we read in, in, in Kings and Chronicles, and we just read this, this great sense of, of prosperity. But yet this tremendous spiritual declining going on. Even though it all looks nice and shiny, even though Israel looks powerful, it really is rotting in the inside out. And then we see in verse 5 and 6 and 7, those who once feasted on delicacies are now dying in the streets. Look at the contrast of what's happening. These people loved what they did. They were, they were so pleased, and they were so honored by the sense that God blessed them that they must have been right with God. That they had all kinds of prosperity. They had all this power in their armies. They had so much land. And yet, little by little, it was all being plucked away. And Nebuchadnezzar was, as we've talked about this, his plan of attack was for two years was to slowly choke the city so that there were no more food there was no more food and no more water and that's why the children are dying and that's why people are dying because there's no more food left they're looking for anything and everything to eat he says these people who were brought up on purple right royalty people brought up on wonderful things are now he says they're now embraced by ash heaps. And notice he says, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Why? Because it was, it's a long, dragged out affair. Sodom was, Sodom was instantaneous. But not for this chastisement, not for this tribulation that God brings, not for this judgment, not for this discipline. God stretches it out so that the suffering goes on so that you don't, it's not just a small season. It's not only just for two years. This exile goes on for 70 years. Notice, the, notice how he uses in his poetry, verses 7 on, her princes were whiter than snow, the color. Notice he says they were whiter than milk. Notice how beautiful their bodies were, and how beautiful their form was like sapphire. And he says, now, he says, now you wouldn't even recognize them if you walked by them. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin that was so beautiful is like leather. Happier are the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who waste away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. You see, God provided and God can take away. God can withhold. You want who you want to be. You want what you want. He says, then you can get what you want. Or I can withhold them. Because God, as he said many times, he's sovereign. 
Notice how very sad this is. He says, verse 10, the hands of women who are compassionate are now brought to the point of we don't know if they've killed their children to eat them or if these children have died to eat them. They have become their food. This is ultimately now the destruction of the people of God. Because who do they look like? Is this a city, holy, holy city on a hill? Are these God's chosen possession? Is this who you look like and live like and act like? Is this a blessing? Folks, this prosperity gospel that's out there, what do you do with these passages? What do you do with this stuff? Are you trying to pull what God has in store for you, the future, and bring it in now so you can enjoy it like the prodigal son? Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance so I can go live. And so he says in verse 11, the Lord, was, has, his full wrath has come. He has poured out his anger, and he has kindled fire in Zion that has consumed and shaken the people of God to the end. There is nothing for left to hold on to. They have no more idols. They don't even look pretty. They don't even like themselves. They don't like anything about their lives. God has taken them all away so that they would not rely upon themselves. And God does that to us in a fatherly loving way, which is so hard for us to understand that God takes away this. Why? God takes away this one in our life or takes away this thing in our life or takes away anything from us and rightly so we mourn over them but what can happen is that this can become the mourning can be, become an idol in our life that we are still consumed with that loss for our whole lives and people can't get past it. Why did this happened to me in my childhood or why did I have this kind of father or why did I stay at this job my whole life and why did I make this decision why did I go to that church there is no wasting in God's suffering God is going to use it for something in our lives for good though these events are not good and so we need to make sure we remind ourselves that there is no wasted suffering in the hands of a God who is good and does good and a God who loves us with steadfast love we may not understand it but this is what he does and then he goes on and says in the rest of the book about how in this chapter about how the enemies are just so happy how could this be the kings of the earth did not believe how could it be that Israel, the people of God, Judah, has fallen. How can this city that was powerful now be taken over by someone else who could enter their gates? And he says it was because of the prophets. It was because of the priests. We read in, in Jeremiah, Jehoiakim, what did he do when they found the scrolls of Jeremiah's sermons? What does Jer Jehoiakim do? He burns them. We don't want to hear that stuff. As we read, as goes the, the shepherds, so go the sheep. He says they wandered blind through the streets. And that's not because they were blind. It's just because they had no revelation from God. They no longer knew what to do. The God whom they had professed, the peace and the love of God that they have proclaimed not by God giving it to them, but because the people wanted to hear it, is gone. There's nothing left. It's a vapor. It's disappeared. They have nothing to stand on. Their words are meaningless. And so they wander blind through life, and their sheep wander blind in life. It's not to say that they were to idolize these priests or idolize the prophets neither like you should idolize Nate 
And he's the one who's going to change the church. Or you got me, and I'm going to change the church. Or you've got these great people in session. They're going to do everything great for the church. God's put it upon their shoulders. They brought them. Rightly so, we pray that they will use us as instruments, but we're not the Savior of Hope Church. We're not going to make it grow. We can destroy it. But we're not going to make it grow just by us doing the right things and coming up with the right plans and doing the right things. We're called, God, to preach his word each week for you to become face-to-face with God, the living God. That's what we're supposed to do. Notice how terrible they were. They didn't, nobody, they're so bad, they're like lepers. Away, unclean. Away, do not touch. They're fugitives. They can't stay around us, and so Lord scattered them. And then we go on and we see in, in uh, verse 20, they believed in a king that was going to be their savior. Yeah, Jesus, not these kings. There was enough history to go by to realize and saying, I don't know, he's good for now, let's wait for the other shoe to fall. But they can't believe, listen what happens to, uh, in Jeremiah, listen to ha- what happens to uh, Him. <clears throat> oh, let's see. Jeremiah's cast in the. Did I have it here? I thought I did. 38. Nope. Anyway. Oh, yes. It was right in front of me. 39. In the ninth year, Jeremiah 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all of his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle of the gate. And there's all these people with all these funny names with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by the way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went to Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. And then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. So the very last thing that Zedekiah saw was the death of his children. And so their hope of having a king to protect them, instead of a god, instead of God, not a god, but God, Yahweh, And the people didn't want God to be their king. They wanted a king. So let us be like the rest of the nations. Give us a king. Because what? They believed that the king was going to save them. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom he said, under his shadow we shall live among nations. But that did not happen. What Jeremiah is doing is now showing the people that, remember in chapter 3, he proclaimed in, um, uh, in verses 55 and following of chapter 3, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. He knew what it was like to be in a pit. He knew what it was like to be completely helpless, that he was going to die. He had nobody to help him. And so who did he have left after God, like an onion, peeled away everything that Jeremiah had. Only Yahweh, the living God. Now he is telling them, what has God done to you? He has put you in the pits. Israel, you are now in the pit. Who are you going to depend upon now? Do you trust in everything that this man has told you about? Everything that God, the living God, has expressed 
through, through decades and uh, centuries of teaching? Or are you just going to go your own way and hope in the best? And then he says in chapter, in verse, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 21, The rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. And he goes back to this justice again. He goes back and says, he, he helps the people realize, and he does this several times within in the, in the book of Lamentations. He goes back to realizing that, as we saw in, in Exodus, where God is a God of compassion and love, and he, he uh, is, is not a God of anger, but a God of love, in verses 6 and 7 of uh, Exodus 26, 34. He says here, he says, but God, don't forget, he may be a compassionate God, but he does not let the guilty off. And that's what he's reminding them here. He's saying, these people are not my people. These people are not people who want to love me, but are against me and fight against me. So he says to them, he goes, but to you, Edom, who are all embodies the entire evil enemies of God, this cup shall pass and you shall become drunk and you shall be stripped bare yourself. But then he says to them in verse 22, to the people of God. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, has been accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Well, it just began the 70 years, right? But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. He is saying, for the people of God, I will take care of you. I know this is awful. I know this is terrible. I know this, your brain is spinning. I know that you're in a fog. I know that you can't understand what I'm doing, but I'm there because I've made a covenant with you and I promised I would never break that covenant with you. And God says this to us as well in 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 12. He says, If I must go on boasting, there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that, he cannot, that cannot be told which man cannot, may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on behalf of my own behalf I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. It would be a speaking the truth. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, meaning that he could have thought himself hot stuff, big stuff, what a special person I am, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited and making this an idol. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's who Jesus is. That's who Christ is. Jesus is the one who has actually accomplished this salvation for us. Has accomplished this redemption for us. He is the one who has ended this separation with God. We are now peace with God through Christ. And the only way you can have that is that way. You cannot find another way with peace with God or access with God or God hearing your prayers unless we follow Christ. And if that's the case, then we rest in that, folks, right? This is where we rest. This is where our convictions, this is where our confession, this is where it all hits pay dirt. It hits the foundation for us. That's it. We have to believe that Jesus is the answer to our hope for a life here 
that is pleasing to God, but also for the church eternal to meet together with him when he comes. And that's the only hope. And that's where I believe that Lamentations 4 brings us back to reality, brings us back to the place, and in a loving way is telling us this. Even though it's hard to read, it's awful that it happened, so the events that take place in our lives as well. By God allowing these things to come into our life, He is reminding us that He is God, that He is in control, that we should make Him our portion, that He is our all in all. And that's difficult. That's a difficult lesson. That's not easy. That's why, folks, we can't do this thing alone. We can't be by ourselves and be believers. Now, we may find ourselves that way by God's providence somehow, some way, but in normal circumstances, this is why the church and the community of faith is so important because we need each other to remind ourselves of these promises of God. And that if you're going through this, I want to be next to you. Now, he doesn't call out to pray. He doesn't, he doesn't say like he's done in the past, oh, everybody who listened reading this, let's bring, bring, bring everything that you have inside. Bring all of your pain. Bring all of your sorrow to God. He doesn't do that. All of chapter 5 is that. Chapter 5 is that communal prayer of God's people joining together and asking, for, asking this of God themselves with each other. So I pray that, again, a very difficult passage has opened up some opportunities for you to understand and be grateful for who God is and your relationship with him. And that God takes these words that sound like, what am I going to read this for and what's this going to do for me? Hopefully now we have this ability to see now how it fits into chapters 1, 2, and 3 and prepare ourselves for next week when we learn what do we do with all this and we, we become people of prayer for each other and with each other and that we praise God together and that we do this because he wants us to. So let's pray. Your gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we read these words and are horrified, horrified by them. And yet, Lord, we realize by your grace, as we see how they fit within not only the book of Lamentations, but from beginning to end of this book, we see how it fits into this progressively uh, revealed God whom we come to love, and now who we have heard perfectly and seen perfectly in Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to study your word from cover to cover and to see how it all fits together and to see how we all fit within it and see how we are a part of the story. Lord, thank you not just for our story, but thank you for giving us each a story that we do this together because we are blessed that we are blessed because your word tells us that, that even though we find these tribulations and that we are in these fiery trials for a season, as, he, as Peter writes to us, this short period, which feels like it's a lifetime, and it is, this period of suffering, because that's what our life is called, Lord, in, this, in the midst of dying in the midst of suffering in the midst of disease in the midst of alienation from each other in the midst of feeling the effects of sin in our lives and all of creation lord you call us to gather together to bring you praises so lord i pray that by your grace somehow some way you use this story you use this book you use this passage to give us the blessing of knowing you better than we knew before and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.